Uh, we're going to look at 38 to 50. Where's my Bible? I'm going to read it, pray, and then we'll begin to examine it. 38, Acts 7, 38 to 50. <clears throat> this is kind of the last, well, not kind of, it is. It is sort of the last kind of bit of Stephen's speech, if you will. And he kind of transitions into a, an altar call kind of thingy that we'll see in the coming weeks. But this is kind of the tail end of it, so... It's been interesting to look at his magnificent sermon. 38 to 50, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. He's speaking of Moses. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispo- or dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers, so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. 49, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Father, we most certainly need your help, Lord, as we begin to study your word, God. We are a stiff-necked and hard-headed people. Um, The truth is something that we very naturally repress and flee from. I know I'm living proof of that. Help us, Lord, this morning to have open eyes and open ears, hearts that are not calloused and stone, Lord, but soft and of flesh. can receive your truth. Speak to each of us in your own way. May we leave this place today as folks who have been touched by you, who have been transformed by you, who have been changed by you, folks that are on mission, mission to bring your gospel to the ends of the earth. We want nothing less than that, Lord, but it will take you and your resurrection power to bring those things into our lives and through our lives. 
we are powerless. Help us in this very moment, Lord, to be attentive to you. May we see ourselves at your feet, Jesus, as Mary was. Just marveling at your truth. Marveling at who you are. Marveling at your grace. Marveling at your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's begin to look at it together. You guys ready? Hopefully you're going to take some notes and mark things down. And some of you might be the types of folks that mark your Bibles up. Uh, I did that for years. I don't do that a whole lot anymore, but I always thought that was really cool. You know, you go back and read a passage again and you find these notes and stuff. And I quit doing it because I could never read what I had written, you know, later on. I'd look at it and go, what the heck? You know, and so often you'll look at those notes and God will be saying something different to you through that same passage and you'll look back and go, man, those notes were feeble. <laughs> he said something much greater this time around, so it's interesting. But let's look at it. Let's take some notes and, and just focus on God's word together. Let's look at 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Stephen transitions from Moses, because that's what he talked about last week. He transitions from talking about Moses to the law quite easily here, uh, and that is primarily because they're tied together. Moses and the law, and the law and Moses, and Moses received the law, and, and so forth. So he makes this nice transition right into speaking about the law, or better put, right into his defense of how he honored the law and was not a blasphemer of it. He wrote that while Moses was with the congregation, speaking of the Israelites in the wilderness, uh, Moses, while he was with them, he received living oracles from the angel who spoke to him from the burning bush. Verse 53 of our chapter, chapter 7, and Galatians 3.19 and Hebrews 2.2 all testify to angelic involvement with the giving of the oracles. That's interesting to me. That's not something that I had recognized uh, prior to studying this week, that, you know, I just kind of figured the burning bush and, and the laws were given up there and God wrote on, you know, with his own finger on these tablets of stone, and then yet we see that an angel was involved in in giving these living oracles to Moses. And, and then it's confirmed by all these other passages. And it makes total sense if you think about it because angels tend to be the messengers of God. And so God sits and rules from his throne and he could very well communicate something to his angels or to an angel and the angel could bring down that message. And that's very well what might have happened or how it played out. It's very interesting. The living oracles spoken about here were the law. Uh, which, like the rest of Scripture, is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12 says. So these living oracles were the commandments, the Ten Commandments, the law. Stephen's use of the term living oracles conveys both his belief in the law, he says they were living, these sort of uh, living laws or rules, these things that could sort of take effect in a person's life. 
his use of that term living oracles, which is not typically how we think of the law, does convey his belief in the law. And it conveys his understanding of the law's origin. He knew that God was the author of the law, of these living oracles. He knew that angels were the mediators who had brought it. And he knew that Moses was the recipient of these living oracles. Thus, Stephen defended against the false witnesses' claims of blasphemy against the law. Having defended himself sufficiently, Stephen now goes on the offensive. We've seen him do this repeatedly through prior sermons, right? He'll go on and he'll make a statement and then he sort of goes on the offensive. He did it with Joseph, he did it with Moses last week, and so, you know, he gives a defense and then he goes on an offense. It's like he's the one who's being questioned, he answers the question, then he turns it on his hearers and says, now let me question you. And so, in a way, that's what he's doing here, or what he begins to do. Look at 39 to 42. He says, our fathers, that's the forefathers, our fathers refused to obey him, obey Moses, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us, Out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And then it says in 41, And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. And then it says, But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. Stop there. Stephen reminds his hearers of how their forefathers refused to obey Moses and how they thrust him aside because they had turned their hearts back to Egypt. Exodus 16.3, Numbers 11.4-5, Numbers 14.3-4, Ezekiel 20, uh, verse 8, and Ezekiel 20.24 all give these great examples of how the people thrust Moses aside and kind of went after their own way and how their motive was to go back to Egypt. Now, incredibly to me, the Israelites would have easily exchanged their inheritance. Okay, they were given the promise of the promised land. That was their inheritance. They would have easily exchanged that inheritance for a trip back to Egypt which was where they had been oppressed and abused. Now, why would they do this? What would possess them to want to return to what they had cried out to get out of earlier? I mean, what did God say in our passage last week? I've heard the cry and plea of my people. They wanted out of that place. They wanted out from under that slavery and that brutality and all of those things. And yet we see in the scripture that shortly after their deliverance, they were longing to return to that same place where they had been oppressed and abused. Why would they do this? I'd like to suggest three reasons. I'm going to get a little practical on you. I don't feel that we're straying away from the main meaning of the text at all because I think that these uh, three things will help to sort of bring out the depth of their situation and what happened and played out. 
Three things, three reasons. Number one, they wanted a broader menu. (laughs) They wanted a broader menu. In Egypt, the Israelites were given uh, bread. One passage says, bread to the fill. So it was like, man, you could just, it was like sizzler, never-ending, not-so-great food. I don't know what they have there, but it was this never-ending sort of supply of bread. And they were also given what were called meat pots. That just sounds gross to me. Just like a big pot with meat boiling in it. I mean, that, you know. I have an issue with boiling hot dogs on the, on, the, on the thing. And they're good that way. That's really one of the best ways to cook them. But they were given these things. They had sort of this never-ending bread. They had these meat pots filled with, I don't know, various forms of, of meat, you know. They were also given, and these things are all represented in scriptures. When you, look at these, when you look at the book of Exodus, you see these things. They were also given all sorts of different fish, and they were given a variety of fruits and vegetables, one passage says that they had basically melons galore. You know, they just had all kinds of melons and cucumbers and all of this fresh produce. So they had a very broad menu. They had a lot of different things they could eat there. And then in the wilderness, they were given manna, some kind of a cakey thing, I guess. Danish, I don't know. And they were given quail. How many of you have ever eaten quail? It's actually pretty darn good. It takes about 90 of them to get you going, but it, it's pretty good, right? These little tiny breasts. You know, it's like, what am I supposed to do with that? I pick my teeth with these things. And so in the wilderness, they were given what? They were given manna at first, and then the manna was backed up, or I don't know, brought to an end, and they were given quail. I think the most that they had so far was water and manna and quail, I suppose. The quality of their food in the wilderness was not poor by any means. God would not give to his children food that was of poor quality. But for whatever reason, God sort of limited what he gave to them. He saw fit to sort of restrict their menu and diet. Now, you have to remember that God was on the verge of forming a new nation out of them, one that was unlike any other. They were not going to eat and dress and live and worship and behave like the other nations around them. They were to become a nation of priests set apart for the service of the Lord. We must also remember that the wilderness was to be a transitional place one that they would simply pass through while en route to the land of milk and honey, the promised land. However, their grumblings and their idolatry brought them a 40-year sentence in the wilderness. God kept them there until the sinful generation passed away. And so what you have is you have this great longing for all the extravagant good food of Egypt. And in, in the wilderness, we have these limited, this limited menu, so to speak. And, and they really did, when you read the book of Exodus, they really did cry out for this, this food of old. I mean, they wanted that broader menu. Why have you brought us out here in the wilderness? Wilderness could be translated desert, very dry, very hot, 
Not a whole lot to look at out there. It was a sort of bleak-looking place, if you will, and, and they had very, very limited food. And so there was this great outcry for a broader menu. Number two, they wanted multiple gods rather than one god. It would appear that the Egyptians actually believed that there was one true God. I actually found some historical records that say that they believed in one true God and he was eternal and had no beginning and no end and all this stuff and it all sounds very similar to Yahweh, to our God, but what had happened was this God had given to the Egyptians many littler gods and goddesses as extensions of himself. That was their belief. These extensions or smaller gods and goddesses, basically governed the world and nature. You may have heard of Ra. Ra was the god of the sun. You may have heard of Geb. Geb was the god of the earth. There was Hecate. I'm probably not pronouncing it right, but the heck with it. There was Hecate. She was the goddess of fertility. There was Tefnut. <laughs> She was the goddess of moisture. I call her the oil of Olay god. I don't know if she controlled the rains or whatever. Tefnut, the goddess of moisture. Now, the Egyptians had created and built all of these statues that depicted these littler gods, and they placed them all throughout the land of Egypt. They put them in the different various cities and, and places, and so you had all of these Little, you know, these statues everywhere, and, and all of them represented these littler gods who were extensions of this bigger god. Now, some of these littler gods were honored with large temples like Amun, A-M-U-N, who was known as the king of the gods. Apparently, the one true god made this particular god a little higher than all the little godettes and godlets, and he sort of oversaw all of them, and he had this massive temple constructed in his honor. In Egypt, these little gods represented the different facets of nature and life. Egypt was a bountiful and prosperous land, and the people believed that these things came, these blessings and their prosperity came through these many, many little gods, and they had dozens of them. People became psychologically dependent on these gods for their daily needs and provision. You know, they would begin to pray to these little gods over these little needs and things that would, you know, arise, and maybe we don't have enough food, and so we're going to go down to that statue, and we're going to pray to that little god who, of the earth, Geb, who provides for us our sustenance and stuff. And so there was this massive psychological thing playing out to where this absolute dependence came about on all these little gods for all their little needs. You know, I, I can't seem to have a child. I, I can't become pregnant for whatever reason. And so we're going to go down and pay sacrifice and honor to Hecate because she is the goddess of fertility. And if we go down and see her, then everything's going to be cool. And obviously they went down and it was, you know, and, uh, you know, and just a bizarre thing. And that was the way that their culture functioned and worked, all of these little gods and all of this dependency on these statues and idols and things that they had made with their own hands. 
It was a very, very bizarre thing. Now, after 430 years of dwelling in Egypt, (laughs) many of the Israelites adopted its polytheistic beliefs. Many Israelites fashioned little images and idols out of wood and stone while they were in the wilderness so that they could have their Egyptian gods with them. And they consulted these little idols, these little gods, if you will, when they had needs, just as they had done back in Egypt and just as all the Egyptians had done. And when their needs were met and stuff like that, you know, and they were in the wilderness and things were seemingly bleak, I suppose, for some, but when even their simplest needs were met, maybe they got enough manna that day or enough quail or enough water or whatever it is, maybe they got over an illness or something like that, what they would do is they would thank and worship the idols rather than the God who was the one who had delivered them out of Egypt. Because of the harsh conditions of the wilderness and because of the limited menu, many, many folks, many Israelites turned from God and turned from his future promise to consult these idols because they believed that they could help to make things better for them as they believed that they had done when they were back in Egypt. And as I said, equally bad, they gave praise and thanks to the idols for what they did receive. Uh, When Moses recorded these things in the Pentateuch, He referred to this group that was always crying out for better food and crying out to go to Egypt and crying out for these particular things. He referred to this group as rabble, rubble, worthless. He literally called this little contingency or massive contingency, if you will, rabble. These were the people who were in the group, in the congregation, and yet were opposed to God and crying out for better food and all of these things. And he calls them rabble, which was ultimately an offense. It is to reduce someone down to basically dirt. He said that in Numbers 11.4. At one point, the Israelites' desire to return to Egypt actually climaxed. And they went and tried to appoint a new leader to take them back. All right, we're done with you, Moses. You're not listening to us. We've been crying out for better food. We've been crying out to go back to where we were. You're not listening. We're done. It's reached fever pitch. We're finished with you. We're going to appoint somebody to take us to where we want to go. Numbers 14.4 says so. Ultimately, they wanted to return to the land of their many, many, many little self-serving gods. This idea of having one God wasn't appealing to them, even though God had dazzled them with miracles and deliverance and his care and had appointed these wonderful leaders, Moses and Aaron and others who cared for them and who shepherded them. They were just so quick to forsake all of those things. They had this promise looming too. Like we're going to be taken into this place where the menu spanks on Egypt's menu. They had these promises. And yet their desire for little gods was so great. The third reason why they wanted to return to Egypt was because this would be the one that would be more speculative, but I suspect that it's 
that it's accurate. The other two, I think, are pretty dead on because we see them in Scripture. This one's more or less implied. They didn't know how to function without dysfunction. Egypt was a highly dysfunctional community. They were into things like magic and sorcery, idolatry, infanticide, which was population control, the murder of infants. They were actually into abortion back then. They had abortion. They had it through prescribed means. They would put herbs together and they would concoct this little drink and you would drink it and it would basically flush a baby right out of your body. It was horrible. Uh, They were into slavery, obviously. They were into drunken revelry. You see some of that. And they were big into medication. They were big into medication. They had doctors and things and people that would create all of these different formulas and and put these components together, creating all of these different uh, medical uh, things that they would sort of prescribe to people to help them with all of their little ailments and their emotional ailments and all of these things. And they were also a sexually perverse community. Very, very sexually perverse. One ancient Egyptian harpist wrote, Revel in pleasure while your life endures, and deck your head with myrrh. Be richly clad in white and perfumed linen, like the gods anointed be, and never weary grow in eager quest of what your head desires. Do as it prompts you. <laughs> Sounds a little like America. Sorcery. We've got all those things here. We're a sexually perverse nation. Now, I'm unwilling to verbalize the different forms of sexual perversion because I want to be sensitive to the kids that are in the room. But let me just say that there were next to no limits there. There were things that they engaged in there that we engage in in this nation, and there are things that they engaged in there that are illegal to engage in here. Let me put it that way. Nearly no limits. Now, people that came up through or people that come up through a dysfunctional culture like this usually end up pretty dysfunctional. They take on the behaviors and patterns of their culture because of constant exposure to those things. Dysfunction becomes the norm. When a person like this that's been raised up in this sort of culture where you have all of, all the, all of this sexual dysfunction and medical dysfunction and all of these horrific, damaging, destructive behaviors and, and, and uh, things and these deals, when a person comes up through those things and then when they're introduced to a new way of living that is relatively free of dysfunction, it can be very, very difficult for them to make the transition. Being removed from the objects of addiction... And may we not believe that addiction wasn't prevalent back then. It absolutely was. But being removed from the objects of addiction was what the Israelites needed. But that doesn't mean that their addictions immediately ceased after they were brought out of the land where they were all so very prevalent. 
many of those things and those addictions and those patterns and those dysfunctions carried over into the wilderness and then carried over from one generation into the next. There were a lot of things and patterns that the Israelites were engaged in that had to be unlearned. And for once in their lives, they were actually given some boundaries. (laughs) How difficult would it be to transition under a law that says, behave like this, when you came up through maybe the majority of your life, you came up into a system that had no boundaries, no laws, anything goes, whether it be sexual or anything else. Socially, there were no social taboos there. Coming up through that and then all of a sudden being told, thou shalt Thou shalt, thou shalt, you know, you can't, can you imagine what kind of transition that would be? It would be very challenging and very difficult. The Israelites had to learn to live within these new boundaries, and that wasn't easy because they came from a land of nearly no boundaries. I suspect that many, many Israelites were so accustomed to and even comfortable with Egypt's dysfunction that the pure, wholesome life offered in God was unappealing to them, and that's why they wanted to go back. Three potential reasons. Two I know are biblical. They wanted a broader menu. They wanted multiple gods. And the one that I speculate and I suspect is true, they didn't know how to function without dysfunction. Now, these three things just happen to be three reasons why people reject the gospel. People reject the gospel because they do not want to limit their spiritual diet to just Jesus and the Bible. They want the all-paths form of spirituality. The all-paths form of spirituality isn't offensive to those around them. The all-paths form of spirituality lets people pick and choose from many religions the things that they want to believe and stand by, and it lets them reject those that they do not believe in or want to stand by or engage in. They believe that this all paths is most advantageous because they can just kind of take these bits and pieces and form this very all-inclusive belief system, which they believe will deliver them, which won't offend those around them, and so on and so forth. People reject the gospel because they do not want to limit their worship to one God. They want to worship multiple gods, like themselves, like others, like sports stars, like celebrities. They want to worship idols like money, possessions, investments, drugs, booze, sex, and achievement. People reject the gospel because they don't know how to function without dysfunction. For many who hear the gospel, great fear seizes them when they ponder the idea of giving up their fears and addictions and patterns and sinful lifestyles for the sake of Christ. I myself remember being struck with that fear when I was younger. I remember hearing the gospel and, a, and the preacher was challenging me and everyone else in there to forsake the life that they were living. And for me, the life that I was living was one of partying and, and drugs and sex and rock and roll and booze and all of these 
things. And then when I was hearing this, not this gospel message, the thought of giving up the partying and all of these things, it just scared me. You see, I had gotten to a place because I came up in such great dysfunction, I didn't know how to function without dysfunction, and it scared me to leave behind who I was and all of the patterns and things that had been pressed upon me for so long. And so the idea of a new life in Christ, one that's holy and righteous and all that, are you kidding me? That's got to be an impossibility. There was actually a point in my own life where I did not believe that a person could be happy or have fun without drugs and alcohol. That was what I believed. And so what does that mean? That means that I spent the majority of my time pursuing happiness and having fun, being all jacked up all the time and drunk and stoned and on dope and engaged in sex. I just did not think that there was any life outside of those things. Now, was that my responsibility? Absolutely. But I can tell you this culture certainly helped to play into it. And I can tell you my parents helped to play into it. I had a dysfunctional home that I was raised up in. Tremendously dysfunctional with alcoholism and verbal abuse and and then abandonment when my dad left. And those things just continued and perpetuated. People reject the gospel because they don't know how to function without dysfunction. They believe that it is impossible to make the leap out of that life into a new life. Or quite frankly, they have no interest in doing it. I think that's the bigger issue. I like me. I like the dope. I like the carousing. I like the dysfunction. It's all I've ever known. There's nothing wrong with it. The world says it's normal. What are you talking about, preacher? You're a moron. Now, we're going to come back to these things a little later. Let's move on. Stephen had reminded his listeners of how their forefathers thrust Moses aside because they wanted to return to Egypt. In verse 41, he gives them a specific example of how they did this. He points them to the golden calf. The golden calf incident was an infamous one. A theologian by the name of Keener wrote, and I like his writings. He's a contextual guy. He writes about their history and stuff. He's really good. He wrote... The episode of the golden calf was the incident in Israel's history of which the rabbis were most ashamed. They felt it was the most sinful of Israel's acts. But they grew defensive when pagans questioned them about it. (laughs) Josephus, the early historian, Jewish historian, actually had omitted the incident uh, from their history books. (laughs) And several centuries later, uh, the rabbis and others and leaders began to argue that it was the pagans that had accompanied Israel, not Israel itself, who had made the calf. (laughs) Keener says that the golden calf incident was so bad that Israel's leaders and historians tried to blot it out. They tried to erase it from their history by blaming it on supposed pagans that were out there with the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai, although I haven't found that anywhere in Scripture, but somehow there were some pagans that got mingled in. Well, I think there were some pagans there. They were Jewish pagans. But somehow they blamed it on them. Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't the, 
that, that, you know, that the people that came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that did such a thing. No, 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 no. It was those pagans that came from those other lands around there. They're the ones that constructed that golden calf and were doing a smoke dance around it. You know, it was them that did it. Wiping the golden calf from their minds helped to lead them into more idolatry. It is the same, literally, with Stephen's listeners centuries later. And, and I thought about that great saying that, you know, those who forget about history are doomed to repeat it. I think it was George Santayana, if I'm pronouncing his name right, who actually kind of started that whole quote. And he said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That might be the original saying there, but it's so true, is it not, with Israel? You know, it wasn't us that did it. Let's cast that from our minds in history. And so what did they do? They forgot about history, and they began to repeat it over and over and over. And it is the same with Stephen's listeners, the Sanhedrin, centuries later. The Sanhedrin worshipped the temple, the golden temple, if you will. The nation's rejection of Moses and worship of the golden calf are parallels to the Sanhedrin's rejection of Jesus and worship of the temple. That is what Stephen is trying to convey through this great sermon. That is what he is implying. In many ways, the Sanhedrin had done what Paul warned the church about in Romans 1.25. He said they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. That is what the Sanhedrin was guilty of. Stephen goes on to further, further illustrate Israel's waywardness and rebellion. Look at the rest of 42 to 43. As it is written in the book of the prophets, he now takes them to a prophecy. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Israel was particularly attracted to the adoration of the hosts of heaven, or astral deities. To support this statement, Stephen quoted from Amos 5, 25 to 27. That's what we just read. Now, the opening question seems at first glance to suggest that Israel did not offer sacrifices to God in the, or during their wilderness wanderings. It seems to uh, imply that there. But they did offer sacrifices to God while in the wilderness, because Exodus 24, 4-5 and number 7 say so. Stephen is talking about the heart behind their sacrifices or the heart behind their worship. What they were actually doing in the wilderness during this time was, was quite dreadful. While bringing their sacrificial offerings to that place of worship, they did not come with hearts that were filled with love and affection for the God who brought them out of Egypt. They came with their hearts and minds fixed on two astral deities, Moloch and Rephan. Moloch was the god of the Ammonites, a.k.a. the planet Venus. Rephan means Saturn in Babylonian. These two astral deities were the objects of their worship. 
they would actually come to the place of sacrifice, lay down their offerings, make their sacrifices, and secretly give praise to their planetary gods. This was a violation of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now the Sanhedrin had done the same thing with a different idol. They were bringing their sacrifices to the temple while rejoicing in the works of their hands, the temple. As their forefathers had been, they also were guilty of breaking the first commandment. So the great question becomes, who was guilty of blaspheming the temple and the law? Was it Stephen? Absolutely not. It was the Sanhedrin. They were the ones that had repeated the behaviors and attitudes and actions of their forefathers. They were the ones that were guilty. Now, Stephen then reminds them of the just punishment that the nation received for its idolatry. God allowed them to be pillaged and removed from the promised land. The northern kingdom was exiled to Damascus, and the southern kingdom uh, was exiled to Babylon. And now these things took place after these wanderings in the wilderness much later. But God is just and will bring his justice at his appointed time. And keep in mind that, that you know this experience in the wilderness did not leave them. They had always been given to idolatry and worshiping these hosts of heaven and all these things. And at some point, God pulled the trigger on his judgment and d- removed them from the promised land. Got them out of there in two stages, by Assyria and by Nebuchadnezzar. Horrific judgment that God brought upon them, and they were fully deserving of it. Now look at 44 to 47. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. And then he says in 47, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. In response to the accusation of that he spoke against the temple, Stephen begins to trace the history of the temple to show his respect for it because it was ordained by God. Stephen draws their attention to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a kind of mobile worship center, if you will. It was a a tent that housed the Ark of the Covenant, the law tablets, and other fixtures. God himself commanded that it be built, and he gave Moses its dimensions, and then Moses had it built by skilled uh, laborers, by skilled Israelites. The tabernacle became the place where the Jews would bring their sacrifices and come to worship God. From the time of the conquest to the time of David, Israel had the tabernacle which served as a constant symbol of God's holy presence. When King David reigned, he became burdened and desired to retire the tabernacle and build a temple for God. Building the temple for God was actually David's idea. 
God did not come to him and say, build me a temple and make it this big and here are the dimensions. That is what God had done with Moses and the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was really God's idea and God's plan and God's dimensions and it was to be done all that. And the temple was really David's idea. I'm not usurping God's sovereignty, but it was David who came up with the idea. Moses had the idea impressed upon him by the Holy Spirit. David kind of came up with it on his own. Now, it wasn't an evil, wicked, or wrong idea. I mean, he looked out at the tabernacle that was still in use and had been in use for a long time, and he said, look at me, I live in a palace. This isn't right. God should have a temple, you know, and so his heart was, was good behind it. But it was really David's idea. And now when David asked God if he could build him a temple, he was refused. God allowed his son Solomon to build it later. Now, Stephen in no way denies that God blessed and approved the building of the temple because God clearly blessed and approved it, even though it was David's idea. God honored David and let it be built. Okay, so Stephen doesn't undermine that. He doesn't deny the legitimacy of the temple or God's involvement in it or any of those things. What he does do, however, is that he denies that God meant it to be the idol that his hearers had made it into. He did this by pointing the Sanhedrin to an incredible prophecy in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Look at 48 and 50. He said, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And then he says, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? And then he says, in 50, God said, he prophetically said, did not my hand make all these things? It is believed that this particular prophecy was made in reference to the temple that Herod the Great was going to build about 20 years before Jesus was born. This was the temple that actually had been built that Stephen was standing in when he preached this sermon. Now, when Herod the Great came on the scene, there were nothing but ruins on the Temple Mount because the former temples, Solomon's, the one that Solomon built and the one that Zerubbabel built, had been destroyed. They had been destroyed by the enemies of Israel, and I'd like to think that that was God judging them for their idolatry way back when. And so when Herod came on the scene, there was nothing but rubble and some ruins up there, and he came up with this great idea to build a temple for the Lord. And I think the main reason why he did it was to appease and please the Jews because he was by no means a Jew. He had been planted by um, Rome. But in any case... Long before Herod was ever born, eight to nine hundred years, long before Herod ever committed himself to building a new temple, God saw in advance Israel's self-confidence and pride in thinking that they could construct a house worthy of him. And he rebuked them through the lips of Isaiah. What did God say long before that building project ever began? He said, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Heaven is the place where God holds his court, from where he dispenses his commands, and from where he surveys all his works. 
the idea here is that as God dwelt in the vast and distant heavens, no house that could be built on earth could be magnificent enough to be his abode. A footstool is that which is placed under our feet when we sit. The idea here is that God was so glorious that even the earth itself could be regarded only as his footstool. What house can you build that will be an appropriate dwelling for him who fills heaven and earth? Long before that building project took place, God saw in advance Israel's pride. He saw that they believed in their hearts that they could build a place that was worthy enough for him. And he saw in, his, in their hearts long before they ever breathed the breath of life, he saw way in advance that they would not, they not only believe that they could build something that was worthy of God, but that they would try to bind him to it and contain him. This is the place that will honor God. It's worthy of him. Look what we're building with our own hands, and it is the place that we will bind him to. We will not permit him to go forth from this location. That was the attitude and hearts. And long before, God saw in advance and said, eh, what are you going to possibly build for me that could house me? Do you not understand how magnificent I am? How dare you try to contain me? That is the rebuke. Isn't that amazing? Wow, it blows my mind. Eight or nine hundred years, somewhere in between, before Stephen was dragged before the Sanhedrin, God rebuked his people. And now Stephen is applying this prophecy to who? The Sanhedrin. By pure implication, from the example of the past in that prophecy, Stephen cries aloud, Isaiah, Isaiah, pardon me, Isaiah was speaking about you. You have done the thing that he warned about. You, with pride bubbling over, thought that you could contain God and build something that was worthy. This place was a magnificent place. It had golden Jews. Jews. It had Jews and jewels. <laughs> what a great mistake, right? There were Jews everywhere. It was a magnificent place. At one time, the disciples marveled at it. Wow, look at this place. But are we to think and believe that it is, was magnificent enough to house our God? The one who says, didn't I make all this stuff? Didn't I make half dome?" Didn't I make all, didn't I make these vast oceans? I mean, what arrogance and pride these people had. And so Stephen was not guilty of blaspheming the temple. They were, for thinking that it was glorious enough for God and for trying to confine him to it. MacArthur wrote something really cool about this. He said, the temple was the symbol of God's presence, not the prison of his essence. Brilliant. That is what the Sanhedrin made the temple into, the prison of God's essence. They did it out of sheer pride and self-confidence, self-righteousness. Horrible. And yet, God, by his sovereign will, by his own sovereignty, allowed the religious leaders to continue to play their game for about another 40 years, and then he marched the Romans in like little chess pieces 
and decimated Jerusalem and the temple. Game over. In the old days, the Israelites rejected Joseph, Moses, the law, and the tabernacle. They reveled in idolatry, worshiping a golden calf and planetary gods and all of these things. In Stephen's day, they rejected Jesus, the apostles, the law, and the temple. And they reveled in idolatry, worshiping the promised land, worshiping the law, and worshiping the golden temple. You see all the parallels that we've been making over the weeks? Pretty amazing, aren't they? Is Stephen a man who is on fire for God and filled with the Holy Spirit? How do you make these parallels? How well do you have to know the Word of God? How well do you have to be filled with the powerful Holy Spirit that can reveal these things in a moment? And you know, we've been talking about this thing for how long? Four weeks? I have a suspect that this was about a 20-minute sermon. Ah, boom, done. Blew it right out there. It's taken me three weeks just to get some of this stuff down. I mean, this is amazing. Amazing stuff. All of those patterns that existed back then were repeated in Stephen's day, and he makes it so apparent He paints them such a vivid picture. The only thing left for Stephen to do at this point is to drive it all home. We'll have to wait to see how he does that in the coming weeks. I do have a few ending thoughts for us before we close this teaching. I think these are very practical things and for some reason, I, I, when it came to the application, I had great difficulty in singling things out because as I was studying, there was a bazillion things that I need to apply. There was probably at least a dozen different things and little topics and, and, and things that God brought to my mind that I need to apply, and, and I don't want to frustrate that at all. I know God's spoken to all of us in his own way, but I do have some thoughts. I narrowed it down to a couple things here, three things. The Israelites wanted a broader menu. Did they not? The question for us becomes, are we satisfied with what God has given us? Are we content with his provision? That's a great question. The Israelites were discontent. Not all of them. There was a remnant there that was faithful. There always has been since their beginning, which was about that time. I may be back to Abraham. Man, they just longed for a broader menu. We're not happy with what you have provided, God. We want a broader menu. Are we ourselves content? I think it's fair to say some days we're pretty content, pretty satisfied with what God has given me, with what he's doing in my life, and I would say that that's backed by more days where there's great discontent, a great longing for a broader menu. The Israelites were willing to forsake their future promise for that broader menu. Yeah. And I think about that and I think, okay, I I think I'm going to be honest by saying, no, I don't have that desire but I think that I do that at times. I mean, that's not my heart of hearts. There's future promises for me, 
And I find myself so often living according to the here and now and right in this moment. And that kind of blinds me from looking out and seeing these incredible things that God has in store for us. I get so captivated by today's menu or yesterday's menu. For those of us that are in Christ, do we know and understand that God is taking us to a better place in the future? Do we know and understand that we might quite very well be in a transitional period? What was the wilderness? It wasn't their destination. It was a transition. Are we willing to look forward to the promises of God and know that, okay, these things somehow play into that, but they sure don't seem like the promise because of their level of difficulty. But are we willing to say and to agree that this is a transition that God has us in for our own sanctification and learning? What do you think the wilderness was? Those people were not ready to receive their inheritance, the promised land, by any means. Look at their behavior. What would they have done if they would have arrived? Decimated it. They wouldn't have dispossessed the nations that they were supposed to. And quite frankly, biblically, they did not do what they were supposed to do. They left people. And then they intermingled and intermarried and lost their way completely. God, may we, God, I pledge it to you, may we be content with what you have given us, little or much. That is the heart that we need to have. We have a glorious inheritance coming. (laughs) The most spectacular inheritance we won't see while our lungs are still taken in air. Do we not understand and believe that glory, that inheritance to be with the Lord in His future kingdom is not more spectacular and breathtaking and unbelievable than Egypt? Goodness gracious, friends. The Israelites wanted multiple gods. Did they not? What sort of idols have we been bowing to? (laughs) Oh, I love God. There's no way that I would worship an idol. Well, I guess that depends on how you define worship. Where's your heart? What is your heart fixed on? What has most of your attention? I think it's safe to say that those things can easily be, easily be classified as idols. They wanted multiple gods so bad that when they entered the house of worship of the Lord, that particular perimeter, that area, they had those gods in their minds, but they still came and, oh, and offered the sacrifices and went through all the motions. By external, an external view, everything looked good, healthy, and religious. How often do we enter the house of God and do that ourselves? Because we're consumed with our idols and focused on these little things and the money and the concerns. And some of those idols are just flat-out fear and anxiety in these things. Oh, 
Oh, none of us would admit that we're into idolatry. But I, might I suggest that maybe there are some ways that we're into idolatry. Where are our hearts at? Bowing to idols comes with devastating consequences. The chastening of the Lord can be spectacular. The Israelites didn't know how to function without dysfunction. <laughs> Did they? Maybe you came up in a dysfunctional home. You've definitely come up in a dysfunctional culture. Whether that's had a massive effect on you or not is one thing. Maybe you were raised in a home where it was a godly home. But maybe you came up in a dysfunctional home and now you have all of these unhealthy, dysfunctional patterns and habits. Maybe you're an addict. I'll say this as plainly and as sensitively as I can. Friend, the gospel is your only hope. You can turn to psychiatry. You can turn to psychology. You can turn to therapy. All of those things have some benefit to them. But at the end of the day, you're still you. Maybe slightly improved. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can make you a new person. Completely. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can wipe away the guilt of sin, can wipe away all of the horrific things that may have been done to you. Do some of these things continue to float around in our lives? Yeah. But only the gospel of Christ is the balm that can create any healing. It is the only thing that can deliver you from those things. Do we believe that as believers? Why do we still have so much dysfunction? Do we believe that Jesus has delivered us from those things? Do we believe that he can heal some of those aspects of our lives and some of those experiences? And, and you know, quite frankly, there might be some here that are victims. You came up in such great dysfunction that there were sexual abuses and those kinds of things that happened to you, that people did to you, that wicked men or women did to you. The gospel applies to you too, friend. Only Christ can make you a new person and deliver you from those hurts, that pain, the devastating things that those have done to you. Don't let dysfunction deter you from coming to Christ, from seeking Him, from receiving your inheritance.